We're talking income taxes again on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We talk about it a lot because all those cities took income taxes from people who didn't work or live within their borders. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Jane Cahoon. Thursday, one more day to the end of the week and another nice summer weekend ahead. It's supposed to be hot. Yeah, like 88 and sunny. So the exact opposite of last Saturday. <laughs> finally, finally. Yeah, it'll be just as miserable sitting on a, a lacrosse field, right? I'm going uh, camping. So we'll see. Camping with my my boot on my my foot. So we'll see how I do. In 88 degree heat. Okay. <laughs> Let's begin. How does the Ohio Senate want to help a whole lot of people who were forced to pay income taxes to cities where they were not working during the pandemic? Jane Cahoon, we talk about this a lot. There's a bunch of lawsuits. There's just something that feels so wrong about a city taking money from people they have nothing to do with. The Ohio Senate clearly feels the same way. Yeah, the the Republican leaders in the Senate, they they stuck a provision in the budget, the the budget that they unveiled this week, and that would allow workers to seek refunds for income taxes they paid to cities where they did not live or perform their jobs during both 2020 and 2021. Now, this is different from a bill in the legislature that we talked about last week on this podcast. That's House Bill 157. That would allow for refunds for 2021, but would essentially leave it up to the courts, uh, the question of whether taxpayers could request refunds for 2020, which, as we know, many people spent most of that year at home uh, working instead of at their employer's headquarters. But the background on this is that the whole issue came up during the stay-at-home orders uh, during the pandemic in 2020 when, when the, you know, when the pandemic first swept in. So while workers were forced to work at home, the state legislature passed this emergency law that allowed businesses to keep collecting or withholding, I'm sorry, income taxes from their workers' paychecks as if they were still coming in to the office to to make it, I guess, less onerous for the for the businesses, you know, bookkeeping wise. But uh, both House Bill 157 that I mentioned and this new provision in the budget, in the Senate budget, extend that emergency withholding through this year, but they don't assess the actual tax liability. So the Buckeye Institute, which is the one that has filed a number of these lawsuits challenging the constitutional constitutionality of taxing people where they neither live nor work, said if this pr- provision survives the final budget, it would eliminate the need for all these lawsuits because I guess people could get their their money back that they feel was wrongfully paid to to these cities where they didn't set foot. Uh, so, of course, they're going to get big pushback from cities that stand to lose out on a lot of income tax money like Columbus and Cleveland and so forth. Although they've but, got, uh, we'll they, they, we, should, we should stop there, though, because they are getting the money back. That's what the stimulus they're getting a bunch of stimulus money supposed right. to pay for. There, there was never look, Mike DeWine said in one of his early briefings, this was never an intention to have cities get money they didn't have coming. It was just to, to make the bookkeeping easier for a while. And the idea that the city saw that as a license to just take tons of money from people doesn't make sense. What, what this doesn't take into account, and, and somehow this is going to have to be reconciled, is the number of companies that are going with a hybrid system where people will come into the office a couple of days a week. So 
So at some point, you're, you, you would think the, the income tax system for municipalities would have to be changed so that the withholding would match up with the number of days each week they're down there. Or, as we've talked before, Leila Tassi, we should just get rid of the municipal income tax system and make countywide income taxes the way to go and divvy it up appropriately. I, I have another uh, question. Uh, so how does this contemplate at all what happens to suburbs where we were working for the past year? I mean, those suburbs are entitled to the money then. This, does this provide for shifting those collections to the, to the suburban uh, cities? It doesn't. And in my suburb, they collect most of the money anyway. So it's only a tiny bit more they get. (laughs) But you're right. But you're right. A lot of the wealthier suburbs uh, completely blank it out. But the workers would still be ahead because most of the suburbs do not match Cleveland's two and a half percent tax rate. Many of them, I think, are at two percent. So so even if they got all their money back from Cleveland and had to pay something to their city, they'd still be ahead. And so they're going to want to be ahead. And they probably feel like my money should go to my city because that's where I was and I want it to be healthy. But it doesn't contemplate that, right? I guess the cities would then have to come after you. Oh, man. I mean, this is Laura Johnston. I feel like we always hear people complain about RITA because they don't know exactly what the regional income tax agency is. They just see that line on their paycheck and they don't realize it's going to their city. There is no like government body called RITA. But yeah, everybody is confused by this. Can you imagine how confused people are going to be when they start tracking back like a year and a half ago where their tax money was going and um, the headache that it's going to cause for all these cities? It, I mean, I know they did this to make it easier, but it, to untangling this web is going to be difficult. Actually, I don't agree with you. I think no? Rita, because it has all the tax rates, could do this in a snap of a finger. I mean, if if Rita knows what's going on, they can very quickly assess what extra you owe. They know how much you made that year. They know how much you paid to your city. And they know if you got some kind of discount because you were paying to Cleveland. So they could very quickly come back and say, if you get your refund from Cleveland, this is what you owe to your city. I, so but I don't but you're right like, about those uh, those hybrid kinds of arrangements of working from home and in the office. That would be very complicated, even for, for Rita. I mean, that would be very hard to disentangle. Right. Like I'm spending four hours of one day a week in Cleveland. What do I owe? Right. Well, but that, but, right. That becomes a reporting yeah. nightmare. And when, when Frank Jackson came in to talk to the editorial board about his budget, he said that if they do get hit up for refunds, they're going to have to ask employers what the truth is and trust them. So the, you know, the, the, the medical mutuals, the Sherwin Williams of the world would have to tell the city, yes, you know, Jane Doe was not in our office for the entirety of the year, but Jim Smith was in there one day a week or something. So there, there, there are complications here, but it does get back to it's, this is what happens with the balkanization of a county like Cuyahoga. Mm-hmm. It's just plain stupid. We ought to have a countywide municipal income tax rate that everybody partakes of. I mean, it's it's and then it doesn't matter where you are because you're you're working inside the so county. And I completely agree with that. Who's going to take that up? The GCP? I mean, Budish? Well, it, it, the employers could demand it if it gets to the point where they've got to track your hours, Laura Johnston, in the office. Because <laughs> there's nobody doing that right now but you. Right? you think That's right. Anybody, 
I guess we could check the electronic. What about the time that I'm driving during work and I'm passing through like four other cities? Do they get a job? (laughs) All right, we're getting. We're going to microchip our workers now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, moving far field. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are some of the hurdles facing people who might be tempted to bid on a historic Cleveland lighthouse that the U.S. government is putting up for sale? I get it, Laura Johnston. Not everybody can bid, but you can't even get to this thing except by boat. Right, exactly. I mean, this is a lighthouse out in Lake Erie at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River. And we've all seen the pictures. We put them on the front page of the Plain Dealer again today where it's completely encased in ice. It's like an ice castle um, because of the waves that hit it. But this is the West Pierhead Light. So it's the bigger of the two at the mouth of the river. And the Coast Guard is looking to unload it. They don't need it anymore. However, they're still going to need access to it to maintain a foghorn and a flashing red light. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which we all just refer to as NOAA, also needs access to collect data from devices on the property. But um, this is really cool. It was built in 1911. It was actually a Coast Guard station until 1976. And they built um, the, obviously, the old Coast Guard station, which is now uh, the foundry, too, was is there. But um, it's still on the National Register of Historic Places. It's a landmark. So the Coast Guard isn't yet auctioning it off to like be a bed and breakfast or not that you could even really do that but anybody a a park system a city that could take it over a nonprofit and maintain it the the it's two buildings right it's the tower and then like that house looking building yeah they they look connected from i've never actually been on the property they might be completely separate but they're very close together so let me ask this if they still need it for the foghorn and for the measurements why don't they just keep it my guess is that if they can unload it and have someone else pay for the maintenance costs, then they save the federal government money. I don't know. Okay, well, we'll see, have to see who who's going to put in a bid to keep this thing intact per per whatever the sales terms are. Can I just add one really thing? Can't use it for much. Yeah, Sabrina Eaton wrote this story, and I I had no idea, but apparently the East Pier headlight, the smaller, was sold more than a decade ago, according to the story, for $10,000 to a guy from a New York City restoration group, which, I mean, it's not like you ever see anything out there. So that was like, okay, who knew? Okay. (laughs) Well, you got till July 6th to express (laughs) interest. That's right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are a bunch of people pushing back on a NOACA plan to steer car traffic away from highways and onto arterials through neighborhoods? Leila Tassi, this is a really interesting story. I mean, bikers and pedestrians have been mowed down by texting drivers quite a bit in recent years. I mean, it's almost every week you see another story of somebody getting killed. So why would NOACA want to make that worse? I know. I know. So NOACA's job is to coordinate state and federal transportation spending in the region. And every four years, the federal government requires the agency to update its long-range transportation plan. And overall, this plan, NOACA wants to spend roughly $13.4 billion in federal, state, and local revenues over the next 30 years to maintain roads and improve transit systems while expanding options for bicyclists and improving safety for for pedestrians. But so the plan includes 
you know, 928 miles of bike paths, trails, and other facilities, and, and 11,000 improvements to pedestrian infrastructure. That includes wheelchair ramps at intersections and mid-block crossings. But NOACA's plan also suggests that congestion on regional highways could be abated by encouraging more traffic on major streets in, in Cleveland neighborhoods. These are the so-called arterial roads, the high-capacity urban thoroughfares that connect neighborhoods to freeways. And critics say that that plan to shift the traffic to these streets is so much less safe for pedestrians and does nothing to encourage people to walk or ride their bikes to their destinations by creating more space in the right-of-way for those alternatives. So more than 90 people, including a sustainability consultant, a pedestrian safety advocate, the executive director of Bike Cleveland, and the director of Slavic Village Development, signed this letter to NOACA asking them to reconsider this plan. And so far, I mean, you know, Grace Gallucci, the director of NOACA, says she's she really welcomes the comments. This is exactly what the public period, public comment period is is open for. And she plans on setting up a meeting with those parties to further discuss their concerns. But she kind of denies that the solutions in the plan would make neighborhoods more dangerous. She said the purpose of, of rerouting that traffic is to encourage people to be more thoughtful in how they plan their trip and and generate less pollution by avoiding highways where you would generally burn more fuel and things like that. So but don't you, but don't you burn more fuel when you're sitting at red lights? And if, well, you, and if you cram those arterials filled with cars, you'll be stopping at a lot more red lights. How is that? Not I don't know. Polluting? I know. I, I guess I don't quite know the, the mechanics of highway driving versus uh, in city driving and which one is more, uh, you know, the the fuel economy is is worse on highways, I guess. I don't know. So so, yeah, there's some questions to be answered. But but, yeah, it does does seem that if you are rewrite rerouting highway traffic to to city streets, you're you're just inviting a situation where pedestrians are are going to be in danger. And and that seems to be the, the I mean, that is what, uh, you know, they they have claimed that in certain intersections, they've already seen those kinds of uh fatalities and, and a lot of, you know, dangerous situations. Um, and, and Noaka says, well, you know, those are those are individual intersections that need to be addressed. You know, there's something <laughs> about the design of those intersections yeah. that are dangerous. But, um, you know, as always, Steve did a great job covering this very interesting debate and, and there's more to come. So check Jane, it out on Cleveland.com. Jane Cahoon, you, you get so worried about getting mowed down by motors on your bike. You get up before dawn to go bike riding. Are you, are you liking <laughs> the idea of having a whole bunch more cars around? No, I am not. I want bike lanes and bike paths. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it seems a bit crazy to me. Anyway, you're right. Steve Lipp did a great job. It's in the Plain Dealer today and on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. A whole lot of Ohioans have gotten to know our reporter, Laura Hancock, through the very good questions she asks at Governor Mike DeWine's coronavirus briefings. But I'll bet Laura surprised a lot of them with an essay she wrote about her experience with the pandemic. Jane Cahoon, it's a lovely piece. What did she say? Yeah, thanks for bringing this up. I, I think Laura really put herself out there in this essay, and I think anyone who reads it will be touched. I know, I know it touched my heart, but she, the, the milestone here is the lifting of all these health orders. And 
that prompted her to share some reflections as the state comes out from under all these orders. She she started off by talking about how about a year ago she was finally able to go to her salon and get her hair done, but she had to leave with her hair all wet because of all the precautions that were in place about not staying in there too long and, and the blow dryer and all that. But she said that that felt like a small triumph. But what she really wanted to do was to fly to Salt Lake City where her family lives or or to go to the Twin Cities to hug her grandmother, uh, who was in a memory care facility that was in lockdown, you know, and so the people there were isolated. But, you know, she also talked about how we all had to learn to be patient while doing things like sweating under our masks and staying distant from one another. But yet that contrasted with her job as a reporter who, as you said, her job was to question Governor DeWine in his briefings. And she had to bring urgency to demand answers to those questions for, for the public. Uh, and then she also wrote about the the gratitude that she felt after, you know, getting the vaccine and, and the freedom that 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 brought. But she did sound a note of caution about the possibility of cases rising again with the lifting of these restrictions, um, although hopefully not the surges that we saw, you know, over the past year. But and then finally, she she and this was the most touching part, I think she brought it back to people who you know, aren't really celebrating this moment because they're still grieving loved ones they lost during the pandemic, or they're suffering themselves from the long-term effects of this horrible virus. And then, you know, she shares that she never did get to hug her grandma again. And that really brought a tear to my eye. But anyway, as you said, it, it's a wonderful essay. You know, in the, I don't, I don't know what the current viewership is, but I know in, in the beginning of the pandemic, maybe the first half of the pandemic, DeWine's briefings had very high viewership. Tens of thousands of people would do it. I mean, it was a whole joke about wine with DeWine, although they were two in the <laughs> afternoon. I don't know who's drinking wine at two in the afternoon. Uh, and, and people would send us notes regularly saying, hey, 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 can you have Laura ask this question? Can you have Laura ask th that question? They felt a kinship with Laura because she was their representative asking the questions of the governor that that many people had on their minds. So it's it's interesting that she let down her guard a little bit here to talk about her own experience of it so that people can see there's another side to her because what they know of her is the person that asks aggressive questions. She was, I think, one of the more aggressive reporters. She didn't say thank you, Mike DeWine, every time she got up there for answering <laughs> questions. She got is, some pushback over that, that she, she had to take the flack from people who thought, you know, she wasn't being polite enough or deferential enough to the governor. Yeah, except let's just be clear. We don't thank the governor for answering questions. It's his damn job to answer questions. <laughs> and for every reporter that gets up there and says, thank you, Mike DeWine, for answering my question, you give the impression that he has a choice. He doesn't have a choice. And Laura got that. And Laura did ask tough questions. We we insisted upon it. So it's a you get to see a different side of her. And I'm I'm grateful that she wrote it. It's never easy can, to put yourself out there. Can I add something there. in? This is Laura, Laura Johnson, Johnson, who sometimes people mix me up with Laura Hancock, and I would always pass on the questions to her. But she wrote about the Groundhog Day, you know, and I think we all talked about that a lot last year when the alarm would wake her up every day and she was trying to figure out what we needed to do to get out of this loop. But I mean, think about it for, for a while, like DeWine was having a briefing every day. Like Laura literally <laughs> did the same thing every day and right. wrote all of these stories. And I got to give her so much credit for just keeping up her, you know, 
optimism and doing that every day so that we all could get that information. Um, and I loved what she said, that we all had to learn the patience. That's what we learned out of this pandemic. And she's right. We, in our fast food, we want it now culture. We had to wait for, a, you know, more than a year. I don't know, Leila Tassi, you have a one-year-old. Did you learn patience? <laughs> the Groundhog, Groundhog Day reference really resonated with me, too. There was one day one day during the pandemic when my husband looked at me and he was like, "It feel every day feels like you're reheating the same cup of coffee over and over again. It just gets more and more bitter as the time goes by. I was like, That's exactly right. Yeah. All no, right. Uh, no, patience. <laughs> Laura's story is on cleveland.com. I think we're putting it in the paper on Sunday to give it a broad audience. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did a couple of people in Akron turn a $200 investment in a t-shirt company into a million-dollar business? Or, Johnson, this is one of those good news pandemic stories, I guess, although it predates the pandemic, but they're roaring. Yeah, this is a really fun story. We all love our t-shirts, but this is not like a you know, Akron-centric t-shirt company. This actually got more attention worldwide than in Akron at the beginning. But these are two friends, Sean Cross and Mike Nemitz, who actually met, I believe, at a, uh, a concert. And Nemitz was working on a rap album. He approached Koss, who was presenting his artwork at this concert. He wanted him to make cover art, and then he wanted him to do a t-shirt. And the guy was kind of like, you know, I've done this in the past. I never got my investment back. But he convinced him to try and put out a show, uh, a t-shirt in 2015 at an Akron tattoo shop. And that was successful. And they was $200 for a run of shirts. They got their money back. Then they invested $600. They did another run of shirts. They still didn't quit their day job. Actually, one of them still works their day job. But they created these ink drawings of mental health imagery in 2016 that were a total worldwide hit. They went from 20,000 followers on um, Instagram and Facebook to more than 110,000 overnight. And then this past October, they moved into the Bounce Incubator space, which is for fledgling businesses in Akron, and they've just kind of exploded into this major t-shirt company. And they're saying that they believe, they, they've, they've had a million dollars of revenue with over five years, but they believe they'll have a million dollars this year alone that they've expanded so much. Yeah, I mean, and 2020 was their best year to date by 60%. So think about that. I mean, I do believe that we all got really used to wearing comfortable clothes. And now the idea of putting on like shoes that constrict you or a tie to go to the office is just like, what? You want me to do what? And so yeah. people probably invested in t-shirts and they, you know, people like comfortable clothes and, and clothes that, that tell a message like the mental health imagery. So I think it's really cool. Yeah. One of the worst parts of the pandemic coming to an end is having to put back on nice clothes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is a Summit County prosecutor handling a homicide case involving the son of a Cuyahoga County judge? Leila Tassi, is this legitimate conflict of interest or is this Mike O'Malley ducking his duty in a controversial case? That's a good question. So the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office requested this special prosecutor because there's a the appearance of a conflict of interest. And Judge Judge Sheehan granted the request. Summit County Prosecutor's Office agreed to take it. I think it's plain to see that this case would put prosecutors in a tough spot, right? I mean, prosecuting the son of a judge before whom these prosecutors would have to appear on other cases in the future, it's just, I don't know, it's just the most uncomfortable arrangement, right? So this is the case of, of Omnison Azali, the son of common pleas judge Cassandra Collier-Williams. Azali was charged with murder 
in the May 26th fatal shooting of his wife, Mawaka Azali. It happened in their Euclid home. Um, Amnesan Azali drove to his mother's home after the shooting, and Collier Williams then drove her son back to his home while reporting it to Euclid police. Collier Williams told the 911 dispatchers that both her son and his wife might have fired shots at each other, and defense attorneys previously told Cleveland.com that the couple got into an argument and that the husband tried to leave and his wife fired shots before her husband returned fire. But Euclid police found her dead with gunshot wounds to her head and face. And they, while they did find bullet casings from two different guns, they noted in court records that it just doesn't appear that a gunfight occurred, even though he's claiming that this all happened in self-defense. Police found other stuff at the house, too, two AR-15 rifles and body armor and hundreds of bullets and documents associated with sniper strategy. And police found a notebook that included a drawing that depicted a handgun pointed at what appeared to be a woman with severe head and facial injuries and brain matter, blood coming from the wound and the caption, boom, bang. That's what the court records say. So, you know, Azali is a veteran who's written a book about his struggle to return to civilian life. He's worked for both the city of Cleveland and the county as a project manager. There's just a lot of entanglements uh, here. Uh, and, the, you know, the prosecutor's office, like I said, I, I, I'm sure that they all kind of looked at each other and, and nobody wants to take this case. So this is uh, the son of a, of a judge and that they would have to come before in the future. And so this just seemed probably a reasonable solution to that conflict. Yeah, this seems like what the conflict of interest law is designed for, and it seems like the smart way to go. Tragic, yeah. uh, tragic case. Especially, he wrote the book about coping with this, and I imagine some of those factors will come into the trial. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. There's a novelty in the latest effort to get rid of the liar's law, the law that prohibits us from shooting off fireworks, even though lots of people do every year. It's limiting it to certain days. Jane Cahoon, how did they come up with the days? And is this time the likely time for Ohioans to stop being liars? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just say, first of all, that this this bill only passed the Senate. It still has to go to the House. And even if it passes, it's they put a clause in there that it doesn't become effective for like 351 days after the governor signs it. So it's not happening this 4th of July. Let's just uh, get that right out there first. But, you know, this this law has been tried before and it hasn't passed, but they, they keep trying. And uh, this time they did. They put in specified holiday periods where you could blow off the fireworks like New Year's Day, uh, you know, the Lunar New Year, Cinco de Mayo, Memorial Day, Juneteenth, July 4th weekend, and uh, the Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays preceding and following Labor Day weekend, Diwali, and New Year's Eve. So, and then they, they it would give the local governments power to be able to restrict the dates and times that, that people could discharge fireworks. And they could even impose complete bans on them if they wanted to. So it's, yeah, it's a little different um, from from the, the previous proposals on this. I have no idea if it's going to pass. The opponents just point to, you know, all the injuries that are caused by fireworks. I know the prevent blindness people are very concerned about this. And, uh, you know, people are concerned about their pets and property damage and the, the noise and veterans who suffer with post-traumatic stress. But, you know, the, the supporters say, come on, we got this liar's law, you know, where 
you're just signing something saying you're going to another state. Yeah, right. You know, so. Well, people shoot off fireworks. You're not going to stop it. So is this a compromise where you'd say, okay, 10 days a year, you can do it. And the people with dogs would know it's coming and, and, and veterans could take some precautions or not. I mean, we've had the liar's law forever. Odd. I, I, I respect the way they went about picking the days. It was culturally diverse. But Labor Day? When, when did Labor Day become a day for yeah. fireworks? Got me. I don't know. I'm not a big fireworks person. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see if um, this gets gets anywhere. Can I, I, I jump think... in? Go ahead, <laughs> Layla Tassi. I, um, all right, I'm, I'm not a big fight. I, I like to watch fireworks at, you know, City Park during Fourth of July and whatnot, but I, I definitely don't think that amateurs should be handling explosives. So that being said, I am shocked that it's so hard for them to pass this law, given that they all think that anyone should have a gun and that you don't need any <laughs> I mean, am i wrong why why are they so why are why do they care so much about about the uh, all the sensitive parties who who are concerned about the dangers of fireworks and explosives when they don't care about about the dangers of firearms and they think anyone should get i don't know this this does this does not make sense to me i i every year they it seems that they put this up and it it never it never passes and um i just I just don't understand how they, uh, how. <laughs> and yet the fireworks companies rake in the money. Although that one in Hudson is going to have a tough time this year. That's uh, the road leading to that is one lane now because of construction. So if people are going out there, they better get out there fast because by the closer we get to July 4th, the harder it might get. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Good discussion today. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens. We will be back on Friday to wrap up the week of news.